Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in early April. Thanks for tuning in for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest today is, principal guest today is photographer, marriage and family therapist and USU alum, Kimberly Anderson. She was on the USU campus uh, uh, before all of this uh, with uh, uh, COVID-19 broke uh, in early March to give a presentation on her work. And her presentation was titled Transitioning Within Landscapes, the Photography of Kimberly Anderson. Touched on her work as a photographer interwoven with her identity as a transgender woman. And uh, Kimberly Anderson is also a photographer and author for the Mama Dragons uh, Story Project, featuring portraits and autobiographical essays from over 135 Mormon mothers of LGBTQ plus children. And so today we talk with Kimberly Anderson and uh, Nora Eccles Harrison Museum of Art Executive Director and Chief Curator Katie Lee Coven. We begin with Katie Lee Coven. Why did you want to bring in uh, Kimberly Anderson and and uh, and I guess uh, exhibit her photographs? So we organized an exhibition sourced from our collection titled "Sky Above, Earth Below: A History of Western Landscape Photography." that opened last fall, and it was curated by our curator of collections and exhibitions, Bolton Colburn, and it really takes you to through the last hundred years of photography, landscape photography in the West, and Kimberly's work um, is part of a portfolio called Demarcation, uh, highlighting 20 contemporary Utah photographers, and their direct or indirect sort of relationships to this landscape in this place. So her work and part of that portfolio are in that exhibition. And when I learned that she had studied here at Utah State um, and her story, which is just an amazing story, um, both in terms of her artistic practice and her life, I said, we have to bring her here. So we reached out to her and found her now in California and invited her to come. Mm, very good. So the exhibit really starts with uh, some of the more well-known historical photographers in America, like Dorothea Lange and Ansel Adams, and others who were really documenting the landscape in the West, um, the lives of people, and the beauty in the West, and what we think about as far as that that photography from that time. And then as you go through the exhibition, um, interpretations and experiences of landscape through the lenses of photographers becomes a little bit more conceptual and um, problematized and a little bit less of a sort of traditional format for thinking about landscape photography. Mm. So you start in one place and you end... Um, and how photographers are thinking about and interpreting and documenting landscape today. Mm. Uh, and this is, um, your photographs are very interesting in the context of your life, uh, Kimberly Anderson. Um, reading here the, the description, uh, transitioning within landscapes, photography of Kimberly Anderson touches on her work as a photographer, interwoven with her identity as a transgender uh, woman. Uh, so includes landscape photographs taken during during your transition. Then there's a later series um, photographs of the Great Salt Lake using actual salt from the lake itself. Mm-hmm. So let, let's start with your uh, the the photographs on on transition. So landscape photographs interwoven with I guess your story. Well, the the photographs themselves are not necessarily about me. They're more about the land and and how the you know humans interact with Great Salt Lake. The stories that are out there things that are left by man as we use it for various uses. Um, My story is interwoven just that Great Salt Lake was a place that I found that I could go and not be judged. Uh, I could work in isolation and solitude, as many landscape photographers like to anyway. My particular um, journey transitioning from living as a man to living as a woman was really um, kind of facilitated, actually, by the open space of Great Salt Lake. I could just inhabit this version of me in my head, knowing that I wouldn't be judged by the sage and the salt and the wind and the rock, and just kind of be me inside my head. Um, the Doing that work really ties me back to uh, my family's history, history with the land. Um, so the... 
somebody last night pointed out that I was looking at lots of landscapes that were pointing out into vast areas of nothingness, that I continued to kind of be seeking for truth in my photographs. And I honestly had never made that connection before, but I kind of liked that idea that I was looking for something out in these vast uh, wilds of the Great Salt Lake externally, but also looking for the truth internally as far as my own experience was concerned. Mm. Isn't that interesting? And I've heard this time and again from artists. Uh, we expect an artist to come and be able to explain totally their work, right? Oh, yeah, forget and, it. And <laughs> and, and uh, other people bring what they're going to bring mm-hmm. to, to the... And sometimes illuminates that for you as well. Well, it is interesting as well. And this is kind of re- echoes to the current practice I am as, uh, doing as a therapist. Often I hear someone's story. They are very close to the story. They're too close to the story to really kind of reframe it and look at it from a different angle. So when someone is able to do that with my work, it really parallels my process as a therapist doing that for my clients. So I think that's one of the reasons or one of the ways I'm able to take that input last night and kind of say, yeah, maybe that's another way to look at what I've been doing uh, in a way that I hadn't really, you know, consciously uh, realized as I was making the work. Mm -hmm. Katie Lee Coven, this, I guess this is a, this is a a very nice thing that happens when you put on an event, you have, you get this loop, right? Absolutely. And you know, um, what you were just saying about uh, artists not always really understanding their work. If you think about, and I think they understand their work more, their understanding of the work evolves, mm. I think, mm-hmm. over time. What they understood the work to be when they first made it versus their perception of what that work meant 10 years later can be very different. And I think, you know, art is an act of making, it's an action, it's also an emotion. You know, there's an emotional component. And I, as Kimberly was saying, you know, in that relationship or um, that she understands that connection with therapy, our, we don't always understand our actions and we don't always understand our emotions. And art is a sort of physical manifestation of those things. Um, it's also a reflection of our time and our space and, and many other layers, inevitably. Mm-hmm. But making sense of it is not always very neat and easy, um, and that's what that's what's you know great about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to follow up uh, on another thing you you said. You kind of made a comparison between photography and therapy. Mm-hmm. You've lived in both those worlds. Mm-hmm. Do you continue to photograph? I actually am photographing. I'm mm-hmm. photographing a personal series um, dealing with my early childhood adoption and some traumatic. Uh, the result of being adopted as an infant, uh, just visiting some sites specific to paperwork and documents and locations. I was actually born in Sacramento, California, and put up for adoption in Sacramento, California, where I currently am working and living. So I have a chance to kind of cull through the documents that my adoptive parents gave me and visit the very site kind of on the day that these events happening, like appearing at the courthouse to make the legal adoption final, um, where they met their attorney for the first time to begin the adoptive process. Uh, I spoke last night a little bit about spending the morning of my 50th birthday in the maternity wing of the hospital where I was born photographing. Mm-hmm. So I'm really, th- this current series of work, um, well, that current series of work, I have a couple in parallel. That particular series is more internal working through my trauma and in a narrative therapy kind of a way, looking at the different slices of events, contextualizing them, giving some uh, compassion and empathy, quite frankly, to all the players involved, birth mom, adoptive mom, myself. And it is really helping kind of soothe some wounds based on my ability to go and to you know internally process those spaces and, and places and events, as well as making a, a memory or a record of a memory. And last night I used the word or the phrase, an echo of memory mm. of, some, of something that I would not have remembered. I would not have been part of, you know, consciously or even, you know, pre-birth. I would have been in the womb. Well, actually, not, not even that true because I was adopted. The, my birth mom was not part of the adoptive process. They were separated mm. by about 10 weeks of time. So it's a mistake for me to even say that when my adoptive mom appeared with the attorney to... Uh, begin the adoptive process, I was not involved in that. Hmm. That was about a year before they actually adopted me. So, But yeah, this process is a, it's a very personal work. It will never be exhibited or shown. Okay. Uh, it's just really for me. Yeah. But you say you have an echo of mem- memory. Uh, well, that's the only way that I can really kind of describe yeah. what, I'm, yeah. what, I'm, mm-hmm. what I'm, what I'm um, trying to photograph. Because I know that, you know, baby Kimberly would not have uh, had a real conscious recollection of being born 
uh, or going through the halls of the maternity ward or going with the parents to the courthouse to appear before a judge for a final adoption. I wouldn't really have firm memories of those things. But when I go to that place, I ask myself questions. What could this have been like? Uh, what questions would have been in place for mom or for dad or for an older sister that was in the family as well? You know, what kinds of things would have been in their, um, oh, just the familial uh, emotional state in this new person coming in and legally making them part of the family? There is an echo of a memory. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of just have to trust my gut as an artist and understanding early childhood development a little bit more now, I can kind of see maybe what I might have been aware of and probably what I wasn't aware of. Mm-hmm. You've referred, you've used the words wound and trauma. Mm-hmm. What What is the wound? What is the trauma? So in a lot of adoptions, there's a thing called a primal wound, and it's called, it deals with attachment separation. Uh, this idea that your birth mother gives you up for adoption. And this is kind of the ugly side of adoption or the unfortunate side of adoption. Everyone thinks that when a child is adopted, it's all roses and rainbows. And it really is a traumatic event. Anytime an adoptee is separated from the mom, you have a nine-month relationship with that mother in utero. And often you have... Uh, post-birth contact skin to skin. Often you are nursing, you are hearing mom's heartbeat, you are smelling her breath for the first time. So there's that continuation of that relationship was it, that was internal and now it's an external relationship. I was actually in the, uh, my birth mom had me for five weeks. So there was some sort of relationship that was formed and then that relationship was terminated. So the love and the nurturing and the value that I was given and was taught was suddenly interrupted. And a five-year-old child, when that nurturing, loving connection is torn away, we have no way to understand what that is about. Uh, We make it all about us. I did something wrong. I'm not worthy. I'm not lovable. I have no value. Because if I did, when I cried or when I was hungry, I would be fed and I would be nurtured and loved. When the young infant uh, experiences those emotions of not being loved and not being uh, uh, attended to, that emotion is often internalized. And adult adoptees talk about this thing called adoption fog. And it's kind of this idea that we really don't know where we came from. We don't have a connection. Um, and that adoption fog, we kind of filter a lot of things through that as we enter you know, adolescence and early adulthood and moving th- forward in our lives. So now as a therapist, I understand that those early events of separation uh, and those were traumatic events. And then being adopted into a family that had gone undergone their own traumatic event with the loss of a child. Uh, earlier, which was the reason, the impetus for them adopting me. So I was adopted carrying my own trauma into a house that was recovering from trauma with parents that might have had a difficult time attaching to a new infant that in essence was a placeholder or a replacement for this original child that they lost due to SIDS. So understanding a lot of that context um, really kind of gives me some compassion for my adoptive mother, for my birth mother, and for myself, and some of the things that that struggle has, uh, how, how that has played out in my life as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, therapy obviously can can help. Um, mm-hmm. Photography, though, not, and you say this project will never be uh, you know, exhibited, um, and so that even shows uh, shines a, a greater spotlight on this this facet that I want you to talk about is what is the act of going through this project and making these photographs, what does that do for you? Well, it is my own therapy. Mm-hmm. It's a form of narrative therapy, understanding the timeline of events. Um, and as in therapy, there's kind of no final project. We never arrive at the the final best version of ourselves. Uh, as with this project, it's more about the process. The process itself is the, the, the final form. Uh, as in therapeutic relationship with a therapist, it's the process that's important. Often we sit in ambiguity. We teach our clients to sit in that space of not really knowing, the liminal space between one's, you know, one firm place and the destination you're aiming for. This project is all about liminality, especially for a young child that's between birth mother and adoptive family. There is that liminal space, transitional um, period of time where you're not really quite sure what's going on. Me processing that time in my life, that is the work of this, prog- of this project. Hmm. By the way, did you relocate to San Sacramento because of this, or was that uh, just an incredible uh, piece of serendipity? Um, I call it synchronicity when mm-hmm. the universe brings these components together. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> at the end of my 20-year marriage, um, we divorced and we split our assets. It was an amicable divorce. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
And um, I took, you know, my share of, of our assets and I bought a 31-foot Airstream travel trailer and a big Dodge diesel truck. And I drove around the West kind of lecturing about some other projects I was doing and settled in Sacramento at a friend's house. And in about a two-week span of time, we were talking about what I could do kind of moving forward because I'd adjuncted before and I'd done lecturing at different universities in Utah as a photography professor. But I, th- that's a hard gig to get as a tenure track. And you really can't make it a career out of being an adjunct. So I was looking forward. What can I do for the next 30 to 35 years of my life that is a viable career um, that can serve uh, people that I'm now more more concerned uh, and, and involved in their lives? So I um, looked into the University of San Francisco, learned that they had a satellite campus in Sacramento, and I attended that school. And I lived in my Airstream in the California Delta for nearly three years as mm-hmm. I was finishing school. Yeah, wow. That's, that's it was a very Walden Pond experience. Yeah, yeah. I could go to school. I could go that internal mm-hmm. trauma or that internal trauma, honestly, of going to class, ripping myself open like a gutted fish, looking at all the entrails of what's inside of me, <clears throat> keeping the good stuff, tucking it back in, zipping myself back up, mm-hmm. doing my week's worth of processing and essay writing and research, and then going back the following week and doing it all over again. That was a very cathartic process. And it was important and very beneficial for me to be living in an isolated place. Again, kind of like Grace Holt Lake work, doing this inner work alone, away from influence of, of uh, other distracting things. And I was able to give myself some attention, much needed attention, recovering from a lot of different transitions, lots of family, lots of home, um, lots of career, uh, lots of religious community, um, lots of friends and moving away from the state that I spent the majority of my life in. It was a big, big shift for me. Mm-hmm. You'd been living in Utah, had you, mm-hmm. to, to this point? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned a bunch of transitions there. A lot. Uh, all big tr- uh, points of trauma, too. Um, happening all at once. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me about that. I can't. You, okay. <laughs> it's impossible to tell you about that. Uh, you have to experience that. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the things I listed are like big T trauma events, uh, divorce is a huge trauma event. Separating from your family is a big T trauma event. Losing your home, losing your career. These are all major transitioning from one gender to another. These are huge points of trauma that I I may not have fully processed myself even in this moment. It may take the rest of my life to kind of figure out, well, what was that like for me? Mm-hmm. Fortunately, in that moment, I was super distracted by going to school. And that was my main focus. Internally, on some level, on many levels, I was processing the events and the transitions of the previous few years. But my main focus, the thing that was you know, pushing me forward, was becoming a therapist. Mm. Um, and just to close the, the one loop, um, you ended up in Sacramento, mm-hmm. and that's where the papers were, right? Well, so my papers were given to me by, adop- by my adopted oh, I father. Oh, I see, yeah. yeah. And I knew that I had these documents, and I, I actually did a project on my adoption while I was an undergraduate here at Utah State University. I photographed myself as a woman, and I portrayed myself in a, a box with holes that you could look in, and I had little Polaroid cutouts of myself dressed as a woman in there with little shreds of these documents, these adoption documents, photocopied in pink and in blue. And so these were on little little uh, wires. You could peek in the box from six directions, and depending on the direction you looked in, you saw a different facet of the adoption. Uh, that piece is gone to the to the dumpsters of Utah State University. Mm. Uh, but in that moment, it was a very important project to me. So I had all those documents for a long, long, long time, mm. and I just kind of carried them around, knowing at some point I would kind of dive back into them and address them in a more formal way. Mm. So uh, some of these transitions were perhaps a long time coming. Oh, indeed. Uh, Yes. Uh, One of the things you'll hear commonly uh, spoken by transgender women, as we know, or transgender people, both genders and all genders, is that we kind of know there's something going on internally from a very young age. And I knew this was true about my own experience from probably between the ages of three and five. Uh, Did I have language growing up in rural Cache Valley? No. Was there a context or an environment to even speak those concerns? No. Uh, You know, I described Cache Valley in that period of time as being kind of afraid of MTV, much less being able to speak openly in terms of sexuality or gender identity. So I'm growing up going to, you know, South Cash Junior High School, Mountain Crest High School, not really, you know, growing up on a horse farm, um, not having any language, Orthodox Mormon family, and all of the things that we would hear uh, from people like Spencer W. Kimball and the Miracle of Forgiveness and these really harmful messages about gay people. And here I am not really identifying as a gay person, because my internal issue is less about sexual identity or sexual orientation, rather, and it's way more about gender identity, who I am in the core of my soul. 
And that there was no context for that discussion. So my youth, my growing up years were full of a lot of question marks and confusion. What's going on? So this isn't what the normal track would be for a, a 12, 14, 16 year old priesthood age young man in Mormonism. My experience of who I was was way kind of outside that norm. Although I did Boy Scouts, I was a ordained a deacon teacher priest, I did all of the rites of passage of the Mormon boy, and at the same time having this very internal uh, kind of confusion going on and not having a way to have that confusion even addressed uh, externally. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with photographer, uh, therapist, and USU alum Kimberly Anderson her presentation was called Transitioning Within Landscape, the photography of Kimberly Anderson. touched on her work as a photographer interwoven with her identity as a transgender woman. And we're also talking with Nora Eccles-Harrison, Museum of Art Executive Director and Chief Curator Katie Lee Coven. We'll have more following this break. This is Science by the Slice. The periaqueductal gray is a partially uncharted region of the brain. USU biologist Aaron Bobeck and her students are investigating a newly identified G-protein coupled receptor in this area of the brain called GPR-171. The receptor's role, they say, appears to be enhancing the pain-reducing effects of the brain's opioid receptors. Their findings could help efforts to develop safer alternatives to highly addictive opioid drug therapies. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in the sciences and mathematics. Details at usu.edu science. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in early April. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We're talking with Kimberly Anderson, uh, who earned both a bachelor's and master's of fine arts from Utah State University. As a transgender woman who was raised in an Orthodox Mormon home and was married for 20 years to a woman with whom she sh shares two children, Anderson is, in her own words, embarking on the second half of her life, reinventing nearly every aspect of who she is. We talked a bit about that in the first segment of the program today. Kimberly Anderson was on the OSU campus earlier in March to give a presentation titled Transitioning Within Landscapes of Photography of Kimberly Anderson. And uh, her work, some of her work, um, is uh, included um, in an exhibition called Sky Above, Earth Below, which runs through July 31st at the Nora Eccles Harrison Museum of Art on the USU campus. Uh, we're talking with Kimberly Anderson and Nora Eccles Harrison Museum of Art Executive Director and Chief Curator uh, Katie Lee Coven. One of the other projects uh, you're involved with, and I bring this in here, um, is um, your photographer and author of Mama, the Mama Dragon Story Project, mm. which features portraits and autobiographical essays from over 135 Mormon mothers and LGBTQ plus children. What was? Did you have any dialogue at all with your family growing up about? You said you had no language for this, right? Um, right. So I kind of never came out to my parents. Mm -hmm. um, I never came out to my siblings. They kind of discovered this uh, was going on about me kind of third hand. I mean, we have social media and, and Instagram and, and all those things. And so my siblings kind of caught wind of this and they uh, were nervous that my parents would find out. And, and at one point, my sister actually outed me to my parents, which was a very difficult period for me. Um, but there was really no dialogue among my um, siblings. Certainly was no dialogue with my children until kind of the end stage of of a, of, an, of a marriage, 20-year marriage, you know, preparing for the divorce and kind of some of the reasons about around that. We never really, it's kind of the elephant in the room, honestly, from my siblings, I'm sorry, from my children and my uh, ex-wife. We never really entirely processed that. My ex-wife continued to push for uh, couples therapy for us, and I was really resistant about that, ironically, now that I'm a therapist. Um, but we never addressed it, or I was unwilling to address it because I knew the core of our relational issue was my gender identity that really couldn't be changed. Um, I can't tell her story because I'm not her and I can't speak for her. Her experience is undoubtedly different than mine. Um, and as I work with lots and lots of LGBT families or parents of LGBT kids and spouses of, of LGBT people, I have a lot of compassion for the spouse, the straight spouse, uh, and that compassion extends to her as well. 
Yeah. What do your kids think about it? That's a great question. Um, I haven't spoken to my son in about uh, face-to-face in about three years. Uh, my daughter and I, she actually, my daughter attends Utah State, and we sent a bunch of, or a few texts over the past few days. I invited her to the lecture. She processed that, and she set a very uh, respectable, healthy boundary. She said, I don't know that I can do that right now. I want to support you, and I, and I respect you, and, but I need to do this in my, own, in my own time frame. And I sent back a message of love and compassion and support, uh, honoring her and her journey. I must give people the same space in their processing of my transition that I demand of them. So it really needs to be a two-way street. And I, I do want to repeat, it, it's worth repeating at least, that I want to honor those boundaries that my family has sent with me. I'm not sure what's going on inside their heads because we don't have that open dialogue. But whatever it is, I think is healthy, even if it's confusing, even if it's um, angry even if it's sorrow, even if it's grief, whatever is going on for them is important in their own internal process. Uh, so this project, the, uh, the, the Mama Dragon mm-hmm. story project, so more than 135 um, Mormon mothers and their LGBTQ plus uh, children, what, what are the highlights there? What are, what are the themes of the, of the, the dialogue that's going so as back I was, and forth there? So as I began transitioning, I, I learned about these, these mothers, these Mormon mothers largely, of these LGBT, LGBTQ plus children and their unconditional love for them, kind of independent of religious dogma. And I started to meet a few of them, and I'm like, whoa, this is incredible. These women are incredible. They're able to give, uh, they're able to give their children unconditional love that my mother was not able to give me. So I really attached to them in a, in a I hope, a healthy way. And I decided that since I'm a documentary photographer— I would make their portraits. So as I, as I met these moms, I decided that their stories needed to be told um, and their photographs needed to be made because I'm a photographer. It was an interesting way to kind of bring in the photographs and their narrative about their journey. This is a, the stories that the moms provided to me were not about the child. They were about their own experience in processing their transition from not quite knowing what's going on with their religious belief and their love for their child and figuring out either either they can reconcile it or they can't reconcile it. Uh, and my honor in meeting these women was to just find a new, a new community of, uh, and these are all moms that were my age, which was interesting because they were like my peer group. But they were giving their love to their kids that I was looking for from my mom. And so in doing this project, it was uh, very cathartic for me to learn that there were Mormon moms that were able to give that love, that this is a possibility, that what was going on in my life wasn't, my concern. It wasn't a result of something that I had done. It was a, a challenge for my adoptive mother in, in her own process. And I have to honor hers as well uh, because she, uh, Orthodox Mormon framework, there's no room for this. It's only very recently within the past month, honestly, that the LDS church has come out with any guidance regarding transgender people in the church. Um, I was going to ask you about that. What, mm. what do you, uh, in terms of the official Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, uh, you know, position mm-hmm. toward the LGBTQ community. What What are your current thoughts? Um, my current thoughts are that they are ignoring science. I wrote a long op-ed in the Tribune about this. And what they're doing is they're defining gender in ways that are not based on best practices, on biological reality, on uh, research that goes back decades, as well as the lived real life experience of transgender people that the church continues to ignore. Uh, they're defining uh, what's what is permissible within the church environment and what is not permissible. And the things that they are not permitting our youth to do are the very thing that will save their life. Uh, A social transition uh, within their family, within the religious space, within their educational environment, and within their employment. When a child is supported in all those uh, areas with love, their suicidality goes down, their depression goes down, their anxiety goes down from 90, high 90% for transgender people down to 3%, which is the same level as the general populace. So the church's guidance for transgender people is denying them the very thing that will keep them alive and make their life happy and healthy in the face of lots and lots of uh, data and empirical evidence that what they're suggesting and requiring is not the, the, the most beneficial way to proceed. What would your advice be? Well, my advice is what I give to a lot of these moms that struggle with this. And my advice is to, ironically, my advice to the church is the same advice that Jesus gives to the lawyer in Matthew 19. And that is to just love unconditionally. Jesus says to the lawyer, the way you get to return to heaven is to love God, love your neighbor and love yourself. And then in the King James Version, at least, 
the next verse is all the upon this love rest all in the law and the prophets. Everything hangs on that love. Everything hinges on that love. And the current version of the Mormon church leadership is saying that love and law exist together. And Jesus didn't quite say that. Jesus said love was first and then other things were secondary. So my advice to the church would be drop everything else and just start with love. How can you bring these people in in a more uh, compassionate way, in a real genuine form of fellowship, without precondition, without judgment, um, without an agenda, without an an idea that these people will be fixed, without looking at them with a uh, framework of moral superiority, that they somehow are the defective version of humanity, and that in the afterlife they will be fixed. That attitude really needs to be dropped by active uh, Mormons. Oh. Tell me a bit more about your experience uh, growing up. By the way, we're talking with Kimberly Anderson, who's a photographer and a therapist, mm-hmm. and returned recently to USU uh, uh, for a presentation, Transitioning Within Landscapes, the photography of Kimberly Anderson. She touched on her work as a photographer, interwoven with her identity as a transgender woman. Uh, includes photographs taken during a transition and a later series of salt print photographs of the Great Salt Lake using actual salt from the lake it- itself. Maybe you can get into that. Uh, so... You described early in our conversation that, uh, I don't know, growing up, uh, were you at USU? I don't know when, when this period was, you would you would go to the Great Salt Lake and find solace there. Well, that kind of began as an intern at the Tula Transcript Bulletin years ago in 1987, my first year of uh, undergraduate work at Utah State. And on the weekends, I and often there would be assignments that would take me out to Great Salt Lake. So I got to understand what the lake was. And growing up in Logan, we really didn't have much uh, interface with the lake. We knew it was the thing that was over the hill past Tremont, and it was the thing that you kind of drove along when you go to Salt Lake City. Um, but living in Tooele County and really being forced to understand the lake, that was where my fascination with the lake began. Uh, that continued on into uh, my undergraduate studies. I did a lot of work out, in, out on the Great Salt Lake, kind of just exploring it and discovering what it is as a thing and how it changes according to water levels and, and rain patterns. Uh, and then uh, my graduate work, which was about Oh, gosh, 13 years after my undergraduate work, I came back with the express intent of doing a long documentary series on Great Salt Lake and just telling as many stories of the lake as I can. And that ranged from uh, photographing the interior of the Bangator pumps, uh, the uh, individual that goes in there and services them with nitrogen gas to make sure they don't rust, to the uh, Golden Spike, to the trestle bridge that crosses Great Salt Lake, to the brine shrimp fishermen to the actual removal of salt at Broken Arrow and the use of the salt on uh, roads, winter roads in Big and Little Cottonwood Canyon, uh, the inflow of the Jordan River from the south, uh, historical artifacts. Steve Simmons from the anthropology department here on campus, he aimed me towards some burial sites that I would go and kind of photograph with the express condition that I never reveal where they are. So in the portfolio that I've shown you, uh, we that site is called, un, it's an unknown or an untitled burial site. And I have a very solemn oath with, with Steve that I won't, you know, this is a pencil-drawn map. This is not even a real map that he shared with me. So just really looking for as many different stories of Great Salt Lake as I can possibly tell was the emphasis of the MFA, pro, of the MFA project. Uh, so salt print photographs. So Tell me about this. So in my graduate program, I had this idea that in studying history of photography, you learn that salted paper printing was the actual development of, of light-sensitive materials when you combine silver nitrate and sodium chloride salt, you end up with a solution that is light sensitive and that can be coated onto pieces of paper and you can make photographic images that way. So I asked Craig Law, my professor at the time uh, in my graduate studies and undergraduate as well, I said, is there a way to make salted paper prints from the salt of the Great Salt Lake? And he actually kind of advised me not to do that. And I, and I think he wanted me to not pursue it because it would be a challenge. Mm. Just finishing an MFA thesis on its own is a challenge. I think he was trying to save me from maybe some heartache and some disappointment and just getting me through the program. So I kind of put that on hold for maybe 10 years, 15 years and uh, ended up going back out there with this giant 12 inch by 20 inch view camera that was Craig's still is Craig's. Um, I need to get it back to him. If he hears this interview, (laughs) this is an open invitation to return Craig's camera to him. Thank you for the use. Uh, So I would go out and I would make these photographs of the salt lake with this giant film camera and every fo- every place I would photograph, I would sample the salt from that site. So I have 18 salt samples of either crystals or a solution, a brine solution, and I would take that specific salt and I would measure it and weigh it and, and 
figure out a way to get it exactly the right way that it needs to be. It's a very scientific process, and I'm not a chemist. I'm just lucky to know smart people. Mm. So I would cover the the photograph, or the paper with salt. I would recoat it with silver nitrate, and then I would lay these negatives on top of the image coated with the very salt that's contained in the vista that's shown in the photograph. And so there's a portfolio of 13 images of Great Salt Lake that are site-specific samples of the lake that are actually embedded in the paper. So it's an artifact and it's evidence in the same piece at the same time. Hmm. That's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to turn back to Katie Lee Coben. So uh, I have a couple of questions, but first of all, this this very interesting, it's a piece of art and it's an artifact. Hmm. That's a very interesting concept. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, um, you know, the thoughtfulness that she took into this project in terms of um, the reverence for that place and being able to integrate it actually into the work on a level that isn't maybe <laughs> not to uh, metaphorically surface <laughs> the surface of it, but mm. it, it, you know, it, um, the land, uh, the, the salt itself helps to create the piece, um, both and the image itself and the material. And, um, so I think, as an artist, um, you know, I, I always appreciate being able to see work that artists do that really take into consideration those very different ways of approaching the subject that they're working with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you've had, several, you've had several examples of that, even somewhat recently, right? At yeah. Miracles Harrison Museum of Art. Yeah, and, you know, this the exhibition that her work is in, um, when I asked... Bolton to curate an, an exhibition from our collection of photography about landscapes. It was intended to complement the David Maisel exhibition that we had on in the fall, um, the Proving Ground exhibition. And you met David. Um, and, you know, very much a, a very different type of uh, experience and relationship to the land. Uh, and, you know, David's work, he's taking most of those photographs from a plane, you know? Mm. <laughs> He's not, he's not really at that relationship to the landscape mm-hmm. and what he's thinking about. It certainly is about um, intervention of people uh, to the land and both the positive and negative that, and the beauty that can sort of arise from that. And Kimberly's doing that as well, but for, in a very different, different mm-hmm. way, right? Yeah, different way, yeah. yeah. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. A photographer, a therapist, USU alum, Kimberly Anderson, was on the USU campus uh, to give a presentation on her work. The presentation was titled, Transitioning Within Landscapes, the Photography of Kimberly Anderson. And we're talking on the program today with Kimberly Anderson and Nora Eccles-Harrison, Museum of Art Executive Director and Chief Curator Katie Lee Coven. We'll have more following this break. This is a one-minute preview of Episode 6 of Debunked. I'm Tim Light, and I'm joined by Michelle Chapoose and Dr. Aaron Fanning-Madden. The myth we're debunking today in one minute is Native Americans have a genetic predisposition to addiction. You know, you look at the myth itself being so impactful. You know, we hear something, you hear it enough, and then you begin to believe what it is. You begin to believe that that's your destiny, in a sense. In order for any community or any individual to take back that identity, they've got to challenge these concepts. They have got to break these beliefs. How powerful to know that this is not real, that this whole you're genetically predisposed is not true. That's power. There are other things besides genetics that cause addiction to happen in someone's life. You may or may not have genetic markers for addiction, but those do not fall along racial lines. Join us for the full debunking of this myth on episode six of Debunked. You can find the episode on the podcast app, upr.org, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. UPR's Debunked podcast is made possible by our members and Regents Blue Cross Blue Shield of Utah, working to transform healthcare from the inside out and helping members navigate the healthcare system by avoiding confusion, waste, and red tape. Information at regents.com/member/home. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in early April. 
Kimberly Anderson's uh, presentation on the OSU campus is uh, titled, uh, was titled Transitioning Within Landscapes, the photography of Kimberly Anderson. It touched on her work as a photographer interwoven with her identity as a transgender woman. And uh, her work is a part of Nora Eccles Harrison Museum of Arts collection included in the exhibition Sky Above, Earth Below. That runs through July 31st. Uh, we're talking with Kimberly Anderson and Nora Eccles Harrison Museum of Art Executive Director and Chief Curator Kaylee Lee Coven. I was going to ask you a general question. Is I've been talking with Kimberly uh, here um, about art and what art does, including for her. Mm. But uh, maybe expand that to what you're in the business of what art does for the people to come and mm. experience it, right? Yeah, you know, I guess we are. I, don't, I never really thought that that's, you know, I, I never, I certainly think about it that way now. <laughs> but when I was studying um, art, uh, when I was getting my degrees in art history, really what drew me to it was it was a way to understand people and places and history, but not by just reading history books, but through the imagery that you see, you know, through the art that's because the, the art is inevitably about the people that make it and where they are and their space and time, even what materials are available to them, right? Technologically, scientifically, where we are as a, as a, human race you know the uh, what you can utilize as a material has changed right so um so yeah we're always thinking about you know right now we have an exhibition on uh, latinx um artworks from our collection i mean the mission of our museum which is what i'm passionate about and what really uh, is so exciting for me when we are just in doing my job is that we're we're interested in expanding people's thinking about art and the but art in the context of American art, art in the context of the West, and um, and so if we're interested in thinking about what's on the sort of the margins or the fringes, um, it it provides people a lot of space, I think, to question what art is, even right. Mm. Um, where I mean a museum I don't I think our our job is to allow people to ask questions we're not there to provide answers um, we hope to just guide you to ask questions and arrive at your own answers mm-hmm. and that's always what we're doing when we're curating exhibition mm-hmm. think about how to where what is that line too um, you know on the one hand people think of us as a, the authorities of, of this right um, you, that may be true on some level, but I, you know, art is subjective. So mm-hmm. you can't, can you be an authority? Right. Right. Mm-hmm. right. You know? Yeah. So, um, <laughs> but that's, that's what's, uh, that's what we do. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, Sir Kimberly Anderson, um, on that question, mm. as an artist, mm. what, what is the purpose of art? Are you, are you, are you asking questions? Is that what you're doing? So when I lecture to my students, I ask often on day one, I say, what makes a good photograph? And there's a very short list of, of, of very specific things. And they're more esoteric than they are technical. Uh, and the last thing that I lecture about is a question mark. And I leave the students with this idea that if you're not asking me a question, if you're not presenting me with a desire to want to learn more, the photograph is largely finished that cycle of communication. You have asked the question and you have answered it yourself already. So you're really challenging. You're, at, you're asking nothing of the viewer. You're, you're at, it's a very, uh, it's a one-way, pro- I'm telling you, I'm making a statement to you. When I have a photograph or a piece of work that invites a question, now it's a dialogue. You, and not necessarily me as the artist, but the thing that I show you, the work that I leave behind, has its own wings, and it gets to ask you questions. What questions I have Im- uh, embedded in the body of work are certainly influenced by whatever life history, life experience, the viewer of the piece of work comes to the viewing with. So that dialogue is much more about the viewer than it is about the artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, reaching the end of the conversation here, um, I wonder, so you've you, you had all these transitions mm-hmm. all at once, right? Uh, got now to therapy. Mm-hmm. That sounds wrong. Yeah. Uh, you're the therapist, right? And I got myself into therapy. And you got okay. So both. <laughs> yes. So both. <laughs> so from from the therapist's point of view, hmm. what what does that is that a fulfilling career? What what does that do for you? It's the thing that's keeping me alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I realized, all these traumatic events were kind of in play. I developed uh, an understanding of my own suicidality. 
Uh, it was very passive. At times it became somewhat active and it was active enough that I needed to get rid of my handguns. I had two Glock nine millimeter pistols uh, and I got rid of both of those. And in that act of getting rid of them, I became more internally more safe to be around myself. And as I progressed through school, learning about suicidality and really kind of researching it, becoming a trainer now for therapists and learning how suicidality and LGBTQ populations overlap. Now I'm a trainer for other therapists in the Sacramento area, specifically on LGBTQ uh, focused suicide education and prevention. So at this, at the one point, suicidality was my uh, challenge. And if we're scaling it, this, the number between one and 10, it was fairly high. Uh, and now my suicidality is, is very low. It's at a zero uh, because I have forward thinking, because I have huge goals, because I have a dedicated population that I want to serve specifically to keep them alive as they move through their life. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I have a renewed purpose in my life. And with that renewed purpose, my desire to stay alive has increased tremendously. Um, understanding uh, passive suicidality and LGBTQ people understanding active suicidality and the particular populations that I work with now in residential treatment, my history, the writing that I've done, the very vulnerable things that I've shared with the public, um, and you can, it's easy to find those writings. Google can be your friend. I like the fact that I've been vulnerable in my own journey with suicidality because my clients often will read that work and that will provide a connection to them. They will know that I kind of get their context of their struggles and they're much more free and open to talk with me about about uh, their challenges. In the same way that it's very easy for me to connect with a genderqueer person, a transgender person, gender non-binary person, certainly LGBT or LGB person, I can pre- you know proceed kind of light years very quickly because that establishment of trust is um, it's arrived at very quickly, and the relationship of trust between the client and the therapist is the most important thing. Without that trust, you can't do anything. And with that trust, I can go very far, very quick with this client. Um, And because I disclose my status as a queer person, as a transgender woman, they know that I kind of get their struggle and they really drop those walls very quickly and we can go very far, very fast. Mm -hmm. I'd like to end with maybe just some practical uh, advice. Uh, You know, suicide a problem over Mm -hmm. many demographics. Mm -hmm. Um, What would your advice be? Don't hold it in. Okay. Talk about it. Normalize Mm -hmm. it. Uh, find your core group of people, um, find reasons to live, figure out a way to, when you're in that dark place, reach out to anybody. And if you can't reach out to anybody, you can uh, call the suicide hotline, which I don't have on me at the moment. I should have it memorized, but I don't. Uh, if you're a queer person, and you're suicidal, you can reach out to the Trevor Project. Uh, I hope that in the next few moments, we're able to call up those numbers because also those are important numbers. But when you're in that dark place, when you're in that um, place of despair, reach out to anybody that's close. Um, because when you're in that place, you really, you really, uh, one of the things that's kind of crucial is forming a safety plan prior to getting in that place. If you know that suicidality is in your, uh, is in your being, is in your life, form a safety plan prior to getting into that dark place. Because when you're in that dark place, you can't reach out to the people. You you have zero inclination. You have zero ability to reach out in that moment of pain. But knowing the safety plan beforehand, having discussed that safety plan with these key people, Uh, initially in a more healthy place, they will know that you're coming at them in your moment of desperation and they won't make it about them. They'll make it about you and they'll help you develop um, ways to stay alive. Mm. I pulled up the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 800-273-8255. That's 800-273-8255. And you can find the Trevor Project at thetrevorproject.org. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what about uh, you know friends and family, or you know if you if you know somebody who you suspect might be suicidal? Listen to them. Don't make it about you. Mm-hmm. Ask them the question. Uh, when I train people, I train them to ask the question: Are you considering dying by suicide in this moment? Do you have a plan? Have you acted on that plan? Have you thought about ways that you might die? Have you thought about going to sleep and never waking up again? You know, we can, we can kind of ask this question a few different ways, but the, really the best way is to just ask it directly because when you are able to ask the question, tell me right now in this moment, are you really thinking about dying by suicide? And if slash when they say yes, if you're prepared for that yes and you don't freak out and you don't make it about you, well, you would never die by suicide. You can never do that. You're making it about you. And now the person that's in pain suddenly has to comfort you, the person that's trying to help. When you learn uh, about the individual that is in crisis, you quickly understand that it can never be about you. 
you have to provide to them uh, some immediate help. Can you be with that person? Can you make them safe? Uh, can you accompany them to an emergency room? Can you help them be assessed by a professional? Do you have uh, resources at hand, numbers that they can call? Can you get to their house? Can you stay on the phone with them? Can you have the uh, local sheriff or, or law enforcement make a, a wellness check to that individual? Do you have a, a method in place already to reach out to that person and make sure that they can get help in that moment? Uh, if you can't do those things, there's really good training. Uh, the QPR Institute has training. The Mama Dragons actually go around the state of Utah and offer free trainings in suicide education and prevention. Uh, QPR is a wonderful, it's best practices, it's research-based suicide prevention. But really, QPR is all about active listening. Uh, QPR stands for Question, Persuade, and Refer. And it is more, it, we consider it CPR for suicidal people, the way that, that uh, it is for you know, the general public to keep someone's heart beating until uh, first responders can arrive. QPR is a way that the general public can help the suicidal person to get the help that they need in their moment of crisis. Mm. Very good. Uh, some, some great resources there. I'm going to give the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 800-273-8255, 800-273-8255, and then the resources that uh, mm-hmm. Kimberly Anderson just gave us. Uh, here at the end, uh, Katie Lee Coven, um, the exhibit continues. Tell us more about that. Yeah, the exhibition that Kimberly's work is in, Sky Above, Earth Below, A History of Western Landscape Photography, is on view. And uh, so people can come and see the work. And um, we are open to the public. We are free. We have free parking spaces. Um, There's bus stops nearby. Um, And something I'm always telling people, we are are Cache Valley and Northern Utah's art museum. We're the only art museum between Salt Lake City and Boise, Idaho. And... um, you know, a museum connecting to what you were just talking about and spaces and um, options for people. There's actually a lot more, um, a lot of conversations in the museum world and um, activity around uh, mindfulness and therapeutic opportunities and for people to think about mm. museums as a space to visit um, for, mm. for to give them, you know, uh, um, the opportunity to to take a step back and um, uh, just to, so people should take. I hope people take advantage of that. That mm-hmm. we we can we have that here um, to offer, and we're fortunate to be able to have what we have at Utah State University. Mm. Now, here at the end of the conversation, uh, either of you, anything else you'd like to say? Just thank you, to Katie, mm-hmm. and thanks to you and Utah Public Radio for the chance to share a few things about my life and some education and some tools for suicide prevention and certainly thanking the, the museum for their opportunity to come and speak and for the acquisition of the demarcation portfolio that I'm honestly just lucky to be involved in mm. uh, and all the ways that I'm able to share and uh, kind of inform and educate people about my journey. All right. Uh, so we've been talking with Katie Lee Coven, Executive Director and Chief Curator at Noah Eccles Harrison Museum of Art. Thank you. Yeah, and thank you, Tom, for for hosting this interview today and Kimberly for being willing to come out and visit. <laughs> in so many ways. <laughs> yeah, in so many ways. Um, we're, we're very fortunate to have been able to have you here you. for the talk and um, to be able to have your work in our collection. Thank you. And we've been talking with uh, Kimberly Anderson, who is a photographer and therapist in uh, Sacramento. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, and also heard at upr.org. Thank you.